0: Hey there! I'm really glad that you've come to check out the KZMC weekly teaching. My name is Ryan Yancey, and I'm the lead pastor. KZMC gathers together for worship every Sunday morning at 9.30am in person. You can also join us by our live stream available on YouTube. If you're from the area and you're not already connected to a church, we'd love to have you come join us. You can find the full details at kzmc.ca. It's my hope and it's my prayer that God will speak to you through this teaching. May you have a marvelous day. The most, uh, the place in which I've experienced the most sustained, focused, energetic prayer conversation with God was a number of years ago. Boy, let me think. 20 years ago. Good heavens. 20 years ago when I worked at Joe's place. Now, if the, the title or the name Joe's Place rings a bell for you, it's because our youth have gone out to, to uh, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. It's connected with, with Briarcrest. A lot of Briarcrest students work at Joe's Place. Our youth have been out there, and Kyle and, and Lynette McLean, that would be Melon Audrey's daughter, and her husband uh, both are, have been or are on staff at Joe's Place. When I was a, a 19-year-old there working, so it's a big youth drop-in center. And The time I don't know exactly how it is now now—but the time. I was there on a Friday night They would have about 200 youth from the city of Mushar that would come and just gather and and hang out It was a lot of fun As I volunteered there as a student we would arrive about an hour before the doors were open for the youth and we would spend about 30 to 45 minutes in Prayer calling on God to fill us calling on God to be active in the lives of these youth and it was powerful I've Like I said, I've not been in a place where with the same group of people regularly gathering to pray in such an intense and focused way. And the reason was because as we were taking these steps to engage with our neighbor, as we were taking these steps to be a place of love and support for these youngsters, I had never felt so far out of my comfort zone in my life. One of my jobs was to stand to be a bouncer at the door. (laughs) So you you got, I guess I was 18, 18 18-year-old, Dude from Topping. If you know where Topping is, it's not exactly the roughest crowd in Topping. Warren grew up not too far away so there are some, some hooligans that come from those parts. <laughs> but I grew up in, oh Bonnie's from Topping also. Uh, maybe it is a rough crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, growing up in Topping, uh, I had not been exposed to some of the things I was exposed to at Joe's place. You had to stand at the door and it was your job to not let anyone in if they were intoxicated in any way shape or form. We definitely wanted to be a place of blessing and support for, for youth who were struggling in all kinds of backgrounds. At the same time, we knew that depending on if somebody was, was uh, overly hired, had too much alcohol to consume, that it made for a rough night in there with so many people in this super energetic place. So they would breathe in your face, and you'd have to smell and decide if you let them in or not. I was so uncomfortable. <laughs> it was super intimidating. And then when you're in there and you're interacting, and, and a lot of these youth came from pretty difficult um, family, family upbringings. A lot of broken homes, a lot of substance abuse, and they were just coming for a place to be known, to be loved, and to be blessed. This was as I, as I walked into this experience with these other folks, learning how to love my neighbor, my neighbor who was very different from me, and I felt so out of my comfort zone that we knew we needed God to be with us when you're sitting here chatting with someone and they're, they're talking about some of their religious philosophy or, or some, some idea of tapping into the the energy of, of the earth and, and this enlightened spiritual consciousness I'm like, oh my goodness, I have like no idea how to talk to this person about faith and spirituality. God, I need you! When you're shooting pool with someone and they're inappropriately interacting or, or mistreating or dishonoring the girls around them, how do you what do you say in that situation to speak up and, and defend the young lady that they are, they are mistreating? When you got someone crying in the corner because their, their, uh, their mom's boyfriend has been slapping them around. What do you do in that situation? And, and so, I, I share this simply to say that in, in a moment in which my faith was actually driven to a deeper place with God, was due to being in this place of interacting with folks that were very different from me. And it was a really, really good, a really good thing. And so I invite you to consider what does the role, what does the place this morning of loving your neighbor have? How does that fit in your walk with God? And I'm here to suggest to you that if you're wanting to go deeper with God, If you're wanting to know him more fully, if you're wanting to experience that dependency on him as if God is the very... the presence of God is the very oxygen you breathe, rather than simply reaching out maybe when you need help, or thinking, okay, maybe I should talk to somebody or read my Bible because I'm at a crisis point, where God's on the shelf and we take him off, put him back as we need him, to this place, that God is the very oxygen. If you're wanting that, one of the key ways to experience that is to take these steps into new territory of loving your neighbor. Back in August when we were on vacation, this was just a couple of weeks after I'd announced my, my transition here with the church. And so I was, I was thinking and praying about that, and I was asking God, I was out, out for a walk. Um, some beautiful hills outside of Montreal. I was for a walk, and I was just like, God, what, what, do, you have, what do you have for us in this time? What do you, what do you want me to say in the, in the final weeks? and i felt god kind of bringing me back to the core and just saying you know what love love god love your neighbor luke chapter 10 verse 27 it's pretty pretty straightforward it's right down to the foundation the basics love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself i felt god saying you know what there's all kinds of different things you could say all kinds of different ways you could go but this is this is the core and so just a reminder, a callback, an affirmation as well of the ways that you are living this out. I see this in you. I see this among us as a people. And then I'm also offering this reminder to keep this as our foundation and to step more fully into it. And so with that in mind, I, I am, this is my second of, of two Sundays in this little two-week series called uh, The Empty, Two Empty Chairs empty chairs stemming from the Jewish Seder feast where it's their practice they gather for the Passover to recognize God's delivering saving work in their lives and they keep a chair open for Elijah because they expect it says in the, in the scriptures Elijah is going to come back and he's going to announce the coming of the Messiah now we know Jesus came John the Baptist was that Elijah figure that announced the return of Jesus but what I'm struck by is that they keep this chair year after year after year as the symbol this reminder that Jesus is coming. And so I've invited you in this time to set two empty chairs at your dinner table uh, each day for these two weeks as reminders. So we've, we've been setting this out, and, and some nights we don't talk about it much at all, and other nights we have this conversation. So we, we've got Jesus' seat, and then we've got a neighbor. Her name is Letty, so we also have Letty's seat because we're just thinking of space for God and space for your neighbor. And so I invite you to carry on, and this week as well. Every time you set up your, your table, uh, just have two empty places. And I have this, have this table, and as I said last week, it'd be nice to have a whole big, long table and a number of you sitting around, so we'd have this gathered around the table, two empty seats. But you probably don't want to be sitting here on the stage as my sermon prop for the whole, the whole message. So we have got the two chairs here. Um, but we as a people, metaphorically, symbolically, we are gathered around a table. We share life together. And one of the things that you guys are remarkably good at is caring for one another. I love it. Just love it. Different congregations, different bodies of, of, of faith have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think without a doubt, this is a strength of Kingsfield's Zurich Mennonite churches. You know, we don't get it perfect. And I can certainly think of examples maybe where it hasn't been the case. But overall, by and large, you're so good at caring for one another. I love it. It's so good. <clears throat> so we gather around this table of our faith. And then this reminder to invite God, the presence of God, and to invite our neighbor. So we talked about the table. Last week, we established kind of what the table is and how that needs to be our foundation. The table is the gospel. We're not just a bunch of people who like one another. We're not just a bunch of people who do good for God. We are a people who believe and articulate that Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins. So I'm going to invite you this morning to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 as an expression of what the gospel is. Last week we went to Titus. There's lots of texts in scripture that say this is what the good news is. And so I invite you, whether in your, in your physical Bible or on your phones, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 2 to 5. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 to 5. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. So this is the gospel. He's calling them to hold on to and pass that he passed along. This is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still sleeping though some have fallen asleep Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles and last of all he appeared to me Paul Also as to one abnormally born, so what's the gospel? It's that Jesus died for our sins It's that he was buried and rose again on the third day That's the gospel And so when we think of the foundation of our lives, when we think of this table that we as a community gather around, that has to be the core. I'm I'm just kind of re-emphasizing or re-expressing what I really focused on last week. If we stray from that, if we just become a group of people who do some good stuff for the sake of God, we're missing the point. What's the gospel? Jesus came to die for our sins, to set us free, to welcome us into this new life. This is what it's about. We don't have to be dead in our sins. We don't have to face eternal death. We can live forever with God because Jesus died for our sins. So that's the table that we gather around. This is the gospel. And last week I invited you that first chair to welcome God to the table. Creating space for God in our lives. And just as another way to highlight or illustrate this, I remembered my book this week. I'm scattered this morning, but I did remember this. I don't have to run off the stage to fetch it. The story of Count Zinzendorf, and I'll I'll share this with you, and I I won't really comment on it, but just an opportunity to reflect on what does it mean for you? What does it mean for us as a, a family of faith to make space for God at the table? Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, it's one of the more enjoyable last names out there, Count Zinzendorf was born in 1700 into an aristocratic Austro-German family. He was to cast a long shadow across the 18th century as a social reformer, as a bishop, as a hymn writer, a globe-trotting father of the modern missions movement, architect of a number of towns in Europe and America, founder of a religious order, benefactor behind the famous Moravian village at Herrnhut, and above all, a man of prayer. You wonder how he got all that done, and yet he created space for prayer to talk to God, and I have a hunch that's because he' was committed to prayer that he got all that done. Scholar George Fortell summed it up when he said Zinzendorf was a noble Jesus freak. On, living, on leaving HAL Academy at age 16, Zinzendorf handed his professor a list of seven praying societies he'd established during his time at the school quite the intercessor, even as a teenager. At the age of 22. When a ragtag band of refugees arrived on his estate, Zinzendorf permitted them to build a village on his land, which they called Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. On August 13, 1727, Zinzendorf gathered the Hernhutters in the church and challenged them to apologize to one another for quarreling and that it had, quarreling that had come to their fledgling community. As they did so, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them As they apologized for the quarreling, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them in an overwhelming way. And two weeks later, 24 men and 24 women, inspired by Leviticus 6.13, they covenanted together to pray continuously for each other that day and night. One hour, sorry, continuously for one hour each through the day and night. Can you imagine if there's a conflict here? Well, I shouldn't say imagine. There is. There's conflicts among us. At times, at points, in different ways. <laughs> could you imagine if that was our response? You know, we could get a mediator in, and I think that's super good and important, but if we said, you know what? We're going to commit to pray for one another one hour of the day through the day and night. And so began this prayer meeting. It lasted long stop. Everybody had a different time slot. It lasted non-stop, night and day, for more than 100 years. That's crazy. This community started this movement of prayer Someone praying an hour a day time slot after time slot day and night for a hundred years That's an incredible amount of commitment Zinzendorf later recalled the transformation that took place as a result the whole place represented truly a visible habitation of God among men After five years of 24 7 prayer Zinzendorf began sending out missionaries Hut would become the first and the greatest missions base of the 18th century at enormous personal cost, the Moravians fueled by prayer, propelled by the gospel out to many nations where the name of Jesus had never been proclaimed. Every missionary who led left hut would partner with a family who promised to intercede for them and to support them financially. In this very practical way, intercession and mission worked hand in hand with extraordinary effect. The life of Count Zinzendorf, the noble Jesus freak, boldly inspires us to live a life of consuming love for Jesus. And reminds us that the life of intercessory prayer not only changes us, but truly changes the world. And that comes from the book, How to Pray, a simple guide for normal people. And so as we consider, what does it look like to welcome God to the table? Sometimes I'm not good at welcoming God to the table because I, I think I'm busy. I've got a lot of things to do. And it seems that if we truly want to make a difference for the kingdom of God, if we truly want to make our family, our community, the world, a place of peace and goodness and truth, that's the fuel of being with God, creating that space in prayer that enables that to happen. So I'll leave that with you as another inspiration. What does it look like to make space at the table for God? And now we will consider what does it look like to make space at the table for our neighbor? The story of the Good Samaritan. I felt God leading me to this particular story this morning. And so I read to you. You can turn now also to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10. Luke ten twenty-five to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How many of us have that posture, that trying to test Jesus? Trying to test God rather than that humble, hard going to learn and sit at the feet of. Anyhow, that was his posture. We note that. He came to test Jesus. What is written in the law, Jesus said. How do you read it? And he answered, well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, which was written in the law. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, This fellow wasn't wasn't satisfied. He wanted to test Jesus further He wanted to figure out if he was in the right place if he had it all figured out He wanted to justify himself the text says and so he asked Jesus and he said who is my neighbor? In reply Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes They beat him and they went away leaving him half dead a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus asked. And the expert in the law replied, he said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. I imagine that you have heard this story at least once, if not many times, over the years, we pause to consider the Levite and the priest. Why did they not stop to help that man? They might have actually had good reason. It was dangerous territory. How did they know that this fellow laying wounded at the side of the road, how did they know that it wasn't a decoy or a trick? That there were more robbers hiding in the caves and that they laid this man beside the road and were waiting for someone to stop. And help at which point they would pause how did they know that wasn't going to happen maybe in their minds the Levite and the priest had good reason maybe the Levite and the priest these religious leaders maybe they thought well I've I've got stuff to take care of at home you know what if I get involved with this fellow who knows he's probably half dead anyways if I get involved with this fellow then I won't I got to take care of my own They also ran the risk, if this was a a dead man, of touching an unclean body, which in their religious system, that would have defiled them, would have made them unpure, and so they elevated the law above an expression of love. They may have had all kinds of reasons, and perhaps the most significant was this man was a Samaritan. The Samaritans were a different people group that lived to the north of the Jews. They were kind of a mixed breed of of, um, pagan religion, Assyrian influence and they'd mix it with Jewish faith and it was just a it was a whole mess. And so they hated one another. The Jews despised the Samaritans because they had ruined the good, pure, true faith. And he could have walked by and said, I don't know, it's not my problem. But they stopped to help this man. You know what? As I'm talking, I'm getting mixed up here. I'm I'm crossing over. I don't know if you picked up on that. I'm crossing over all the reasons why the Samaritan might not have stopped with the Jewish and the priest. They may have had all those reasons, but the Samaritan would have looked at him and been like, I'm not touching him because he is a Jew. Sorry about that. I hope you can track with what I'm saying here. So the priest and the Levite may have continued walking along for a whole variety of reasons. To help this man would have been a risk. To help this man would have been a sacrifice. It would have put them out. And so they continued. But the Samaritan stopped. The Samaritan who was considered an enemy with the Jew. The Samaritan who'd been rejected, despised, harmed, marginalized by the Jews, he sees this Jewish man. Why am I going to help that guy when his family has always rejected us? When they've oppressed us? When they've hurt us? When they've despised us? Why would I stop and help that man? He had every right to say that and to keep walking. But the good Samaritan risked his life because those robbers could have jumped out, he risked his life to help the man. Wherever it was he was going, for whatever reason, he sacrificed that obligation, that duty, to be many hours late, perhaps a day late. He said, that doesn't matter, I need to help this man in this moment. This good Samaritan did more than just express thoughts and prayers as he strolled by. He could have said, well, you know I, I wish him well, dear Lord. Please help that man restore, come to full health. But instead he was active in his love. It says that he poured oil and wine on the wounds. He bandages him. He puts him on his donkey. He brings him to an inn. He takes care of him. He gives money to the innkeeper to cover expense. And that money, so it said he gave him two denarii. A Denarius was the usual daily wage of a day labor. So about two days of income. What was the last time that I gave two days worth of income to someone who needed help? I might toss them 30 bucks here or whatever, right? That's easy. But when was the last time I saw someone in need, that you saw someone in need and gave two days wages? That's, that's on, in the big scheme of things, that's not a big deal. But in a kind of our daily, I got I our nose to the ground, that seems like a really big deal. So we gave him enough for two days worth and said, I'll cover the expenses later. This was sacrificial, courageous love. The fellow hurt by the side of the road wasn't his mother, wasn't his cousin, wasn't from his tribe, his village. He could have said, it's not my problem. Surely someone who's Jewish will come along and look after this fellow. This fellow was his enemy. One of the things that I also couldn't help note was that he had the financial means to help this guy. I don't know if he was poor and this, was, this meant that he wasn't going to have food next week, or perhaps he was a really wealthy man and... and It was a a drop in the bucket. But thinking also of how we love our neighbor, part of that is working hard so that you have the financial means. He had the money in his pocket to help this guy. What does it look like for you as you love your neighbor to work hard so that you can use what God has given you to help and to bless other people? So that also struck me. Is that one of the purposes of why I work hard and earn, earn money? So upon hearing the story, Jesus says to the expert in the law, he says, go and do likewise. What does it look like for you, for me, to go and to do likewise, to live in this sacrificial way? Not helping, just when it's convenient. How can I ensure that I don't live as that Levi and that priest where I'm so concerned with crossing the T's, dotting the I's, making sure I get my church systems right, making sure that I'm teaching the right theology, making sure I'm, I'm looking after my responsibilities, that my focus isn't there, so I can't even pause to help someone beside me who is hurting and struggling. How is God calling you? How is God calling this church to love your neighbor in this way? It's so easy to worry first and foremost about protecting our identity. This is who I am. This is who we are, and that's what matters. It's so easy to think about maintaining our systems, our programs, our budgets. It's so easy for me to make sure that my family is safe and secure before I go and give of myself to help someone else. To love in this way as the Samaritan is to say, I don't know how this is gonna turn out. I might actually be harmed in the process, but I'm gonna love anyways. That's what's happening here. When Jesus says, go and do likewise, he's saying, risk who you are, risk what you have, risk your safety and security to help those in need. The Samaritan, when he helped, he didn't know if that Jewish man was going to chew him and spit him out because they were enemies. That fellow could have taken him for a ride, could have taken him for all he was worth Could have cussed him out when he had the opportunity, and yet he helped anyways. If we say that we love Jesus, our natural response is to live in this kind of way. Jesus himself risked everything that he had, gave up everything that he had to love us by going to the cross, he didn't have to. God in human flesh, the perfect man, full of grace and truth, and he said, I'm gonna sacrifice everything that I have. He loved extravagantly, 1 John 3.16, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has not pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? We have received this kind of extravagant love. And so if we want to walk in the fullness of what God has for us to experience God fully, It means to love in this kind of way. Got a couple of quotes here that I'm gonna share with you and I'm not gonna comment on them. I'm just gonna leave them with you just to mull on for a moment. So the first one, love thy neighbor, thy homeless neighbor, thy Muslim neighbor, thy black neighbor, thy gay neighbor, thy immigrant neighbor, thy Christian neighbor, thy Jewish neighbor, thy atheist neighbor, thy addicted neighbor. It's easier to love humanity as a whole than to love one's neighbor. Isn't that the truth? That one kind of hits home for me. There's no way to be Christian at home by yourself. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same people. All right. So if you just to reflect on, what does it look like for you as an individual, for us as a church to always have that posture? And so I, I offer this not as a, I don't know, like I don't want it to be as a, you need to do more and to lay a weight upon you, but an invitation to step more fully and freely into the life of Jesus. We live in a time that's incredibly unsettled in so many ways, and I feel like maybe I'm a broken record when I keep referencing this in my messages. Things are so unsettled right now. And it's hard, it's hard, it's overwhelming. And it's in these times, individually or as a church, where it's so easy just to kind of curl up inside, All right? I'm just gonna gonna close myself off from the world because it's chaotic. And so I invite you to earnestly ask God, God, what does it look like for me to continue this posture of radical, generous, sacrificial love in this time? Because that's where we experience God. That's where all of a sudden our Bible studies aren't just theory, but they make a difference on the ground. That's why we have to plead with God, because we feel so out of our comfort zone. That's where the gospel comes alive in our hearts. And so I want to encourage you as a church in the years to come, may this be our secondary focus. First, to make space for God, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then also to love our neighbor as ourselves in ways that sacrifice, in ways that are foolish, in ways that actually risk giving up who we are. For it's in these places that we will see God. The future of our church doesn't lie in strengthening our programs. The future of our church doesn't lie in having all the right staff, finding the perfect lead pastor. The future of our church doesn't lie in trying to get as many people in the pews as possible. I could list any number of things, and those are all good things that we tend to. the future of our church, the future of us in whatever way, shape or form, in the decades to come, as things change and shift and the way things look is different, the future of being the people of God together, is making space for God at the table and making our space for God, or for our neighbor at the table and doing that extravagantly. And so may you today hear the words of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. May you hear the words of Jesus after pointing the good Samaritan when he says, go and do likewise. And I really believe that in that, you will find peace, joy, and excitement you will thrive in your walk with God when you live in such a way. Let's have a word of prayer together. Don't no, like Greg and Rachel come on up. God, we uh, thank you for these stories. Thank you that you've loved us in this extravagant way that you didn't take care of yourself first. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to direct us in response to this message, in response to this text. Each one of us, this looks different different ways. And maybe, God, there are folks, I, I pray that for folks for whom there is actually a need to rest that you would express that. And for those of us who need that little kick in that pants or that invitation to step more fully and loving extravagantly, I pray that you would speak that to us. I pray that you would open our eyes. God, I pray that you would bring across our past this week a situation that stares us fully in the face that we can't ignore. where we can live and love in this sacrificial way. We want to walk with you. We want to be like you, Jesus. So enable us, give us the strength. We look to you for that strength. We love you. So guide us in this, we pray. And, and, and as I pray this, I, I pray for this church, God. Thank you for these people. Thank you for who they are. Thank you for your work among us. Thank you for how these people have been loving their neighbor in marvelous ways over the years. I pray for your blessing. I pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit among us. We commit ourselves to you today, Lord Jesus. Amen. As I finish, I remind you that weather permitting, we will be outside next Sunday. We'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper together. Also, bring something that symbolizes what you're thankful for. Maybe it's, maybe it's an actual object. Or maybe it's something that you symbolize. We did that a couple years ago and there was all kinds of fascinating things. Something you're thankful for. We'll have a table, a whole big display as kind of an offering of thanks to God. Um, And we will be joining in the Lord's Supper together with prepackaged little containers that will have. If you're joined by live stream, make sure you bring that to the live stream video with you. And uh, just looking forward to giving God thanks and celebrating with you next Sunday outdoors. Bring your lawn chair, weather permitting. So maybe we'll be inside. We'll see.